Welcome, everyone, to the fourth episode of Hyper Talks. We are now in our third season. As always, thank you so much to Beppo Studios for letting us record here. I'm your host, Tobin Sidney Smith. With me is my co host, Deborah Sinet. Hey. And our guest, Carly Rudd. Hi, guys. Owner of Manier AB, an infrastructure management consultant group, and founder of Synergy Room, which is a platform for entrepreneurs to expand networks, challenge, and empower each other to gain new energy and inspiration. Carl is also a global public speaker, featured in settings such as CNBC and Internet World, and touches on a variety of topics, including our topic today, online global consumerism. Welcome, Carl. Thanks. As I mentioned before, today we'll be tackling topics such as online consumer behavior and how big data plays into this, current market trends, and of course, we'll get some advice from Carl on entering the industry today. But first off, I propose we do a check-in. For our listeners who don't know, and for Carl, a check-in is a tool we use at Hyper to kind of get the day started. This can be a simple emotion, but today we actually chose a check-in question, which is your favorite quote. So, Debbie, if you want to get us started. Yeah, uh, a quote that I live by for a long time is, if it both frightens you and excites you, you should definitely pursue it. Tobin? Yeah, um, a quote that I heard the other day from one of our lecturers who came to Hyper that resonated with me a lot was from Heraclitus, who was a pre-Socrates philosopher in ancient Greece. And the quote says, nothing in this world is permanent except for change. Nice. nice. I would go for do the impossible. Mm. Nothing is impossible when you put your mind to it. So let's get, uh, get right into it and uh, start off with maybe a bit more of an introduction. Carl, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself, some past things you've worked on. I know I mentioned Zenergy Room, but why don't you give us a bit of a background on yourself? Yeah, so I started my first company when I was 16. It was an IT consultant company back in 1996 when this was. The IT that we worked with was not at all as complex as it is today. But that's where I also learned that this is something that I really want to do. So I started quite soon to work more and more with my company and realize that this is what I want to pursue. So I didn't go for any more education after gymnasium, basically. And since then, I've been running several different companies. Back in early 2000, I started the first interior design store in the Nordic, and it was really, really interesting. I learned a lot. It turned out to be quite interesting, the, the entire journey with running an e-commerce company in that early year. It sort of formed what I'm doing today. I firsthand learned a lot about how consumers behave online and so on. I also built my own e-commerce platform from the beginning. And I always try to bend the rules or define new rules, what other people call as think outside the box. And today I really enjoy sharing my experience with others and influence or inspire or whatever we like to call it to get people to believe in themselves and actually go out there and do the thing they believe in and uh, that they love instead of just going to a job to earn money. Yeah, it's pretty clear that you're a natural self-starter from a very yeah. young age, as you said. You started your own company by the ripe old age of 16. When was that transition between you being a self-starter focused on yourself and your own companies to wanting to help others and be a public speaker, be a workshop facilitator? What made that transition happen? Many people started to ask me questions about how I made the things I do possible. 
I realized that answering these questions actually inspire and motivate me to do more and to actually believe more in myself as well. But I also realized that doing this one-on-one, of course, it's fun and it's interesting, but it's not enough for me. I want to share with a larger audience and to help more people to actually do the things they love. And that's how I came into running different setups like Synergy Room and and so on. And I realized that, okay, so this is something that I want to build even more on. And that's when I started to look into becoming a public speaker and other platforms to inspire others. When you were young, you started off the business pretty soon. Was there any time that you hit a wall or you thought nothing would work? And how did you overcome that? Whenever you try to do something that is new to you or that the people around you don't do, you will be presented with many walls. And it's basically up to you not to hit the wall. The thing is that you need to be prepared for failure. Especially in Sweden, failure is something negative. But if you go to Silicon Valley, for example, failure is actually something that you build on. Mm -hmm. It's inspiring almost. It's something that people look up to, that you've been part of something that failed. That means that you learned a lot. If you never fail, you don't learn as much. You don't question your decisions because the decisions was obviously right. And uh, you never be in a situation where you really think about why and what you're doing. So I would say that the most important thing is to be prepared to fail, not to plan to fail, but actually don't feel that the failure is a failure because it's one step closer to the success. Okay, so we're going to move into one of our, our topics we wanted to discuss today, the changing retail industry. To me, there seems to be a divide in the culture of the industry. Some people believe that online is everything. People aren't going to want to leave their homes or their laptops, so you better jump aboard the digital instant access order from your fingertips train or be left behind. However, there's this other school of thought that believes that everything being put online, there's a lot more value in a physical store, you know, being able to bring your customers in and see and touch your product. So my question to you is, how do you see these two schools of thought diverging going forward? Do you see much change coming to one or do you see them both coexisting? I would say it's not up up to the industry to define. It's up to the consumers to show their expectations. And that is something that the industry have a really hard time to analyze and understand. But definitely they will coexist, but I think they will blend together. The consumers don't really care about how, where and why they use these different platforms. They just want to use the platform that is most suitable for them right there and then. If I want to touch and feel something, I go to a store. Or if I want to have professional advice, I talk to someone that knows most about the product. What is listening to consumers? What should companies do to make sure they're making their choices based on what consumers are trying to tell them? If we look at e-commerce, for example, e-commerce is a concept or or a, a method that we are applying to meet consumers online and to sell products to them online. But the tool we use or the, the way we present the products and the, the way we sell the products is very much a direct copy of how common in-store retail work. What emerging trend in this area do you think will be more prominent soon? Will AI start to do our adverts or will machine learning be able to create the perfectly targeted ad for millions of created online personas? That's actually a really interesting question. Many people think of AI as something that behaves and thinks on it, on its own because that is what AI is. But when many companies talk about their AI, 
it's actually something that is based on machine learning. It's a set of rules and the machine follow those rules. It's never going to succeed in thinking outside the box. So that's the difference between machine learning and AI, according to me. Whereas an AI has just now proven to be thinking outside the box. But the future for e-commerce connected to AI is really interesting because all larger e-commerce sites and, and platforms are trying to find out what is the next thing. And we see that there are platforms working on augmented reality. We have the virtual reality platforms and so on. I would say that the consumers are definitely not ready to start shopping as the first thing they do in VR or, or augmented reality. The people will only do these type of things whenever they use these type of technology in their everyday life. So if we look at the beginning of e-commerce, people were interested in products online. In my example, they used our design store as an inspirational magazine. Kind of like a catalog. Yeah. And like, oh, this would be nice. And then they go out in the city and they try to find something similar to create that feeling in their home. So that's actually kind of interesting that this behavior is changing slightly, that we now go to stores to see the product and then go online and buy it because the price is lower. But it's going to be interesting to see when the stores have found the right method to tackle that, where the critical point is the experience the consumer gets from the store or the product or, or the treatment. Because if we look at the trends and the statistics, we can already see that consumers are starting to pay more in stores where they are better treated. So this leads back to the retail segment and the physical stores. If they're better treated and they have a better experience, then people will still keep on shopping in physical stores. But the physical stores need to understand that they need to add simplifying layers to it and to get the experience from being in a store without leaving their home is what the e-commerce platforms are solving. But the feeling of, of a personal touch to a conversation mm -hmm. is so much more valuable than just reading a product description. So if we look at the, how people shop in China, the consumers are not interested in reading about the product. So they use the chat interface in the e-commerce sites and ask the questions that they clearly have the answer uh, for <laughs> just in front of them. But they want to communicate with someone to see that, okay, so this is something that actually exists somehow. Someone, someone made this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there's someone there. Uh, and this is going to be super interesting, I think, for smaller brands as well. Like, how can you create this exclusive feeling using connected methods? And that is what's going to be interesting in the upcoming years. So with all this uh, variability, what are some first steps that a young entrepreneur can really make sure to hit in order to see that first path of success in the, the preliminary growth of a business? So the first thing that I would suggest for anyone running a business is to learn how to analyze the results, but also to analyze your failures or your mistakes. So if you run an e-commerce site, you have tons of data that you can just look into, but you need to understand how to look at that data. You need to understand why your store actually only converts 2.5% of your visitors, which is global business average. And most stores don't look into why they lose almost 98% of their visitors. And that is one of the major pain points, I would say. 
kind of follow up to that would be what is some conventional wisdom relevant in the industry that people don't take seriously enough? I know you mentioned measure your failures, but is there another obvious one that people don't consider often enough? Yes, for sure. As as I mentioned before, we build a solution on a technical platform. We limit our solutions based on the technical platform's limitations. Instead of looking at our visitors, our users, and our customers, maybe the consumers actually don't need all these bells and whistles. They just want a simple buy button. Why do we have a checkout procedure that is 10 steps, where I as a consumer only want to add my shipping address and my payment details? I don't want to see all these other things. I don't want to sign up for a newsletter. I don't want to sign up for a newsletter, for sure. And um, if we step into the details, why do I get the question to add a home phone number and a mobile phone number, for example, as many stores still Mm -hmm. ask for? And why do I have to verify my email address? I mean, it's up to the store to sort these things out. I just want this product in my hand. Yeah. I don't want to spend more time in, in the store. So simple is better. Yeah. Always. Yeah, always. Less is more. So switching gears to a very hot topic in today's world, big data, a buzzword throughout the industry. Everyone uses it. Not a lot of people really understand what it means. But with the emergence of Cambridge Analytica and the scandal with Facebook, understanding big data and its potential power has never been more relevant. Where do you see this power being leveraged outside of just remarketing going forward? I really believe in big data as something that will change the future for for us as we live our lives in many ways. But again, stepping back to learning how to analyze the data, I more believe in, in the concept of smart data. It's no use of collecting massive amount of data if I don't understand how to use it and what knowledge I can draw from it. So I need to have an idea about how I want to use my data before I start collecting it. The possibility that we see with big data and to actually combine data sets is where things starting to be really interesting. Like if I, as a consumer, allow some service to connect my data to other data, for example, how I drive my car or how I use my public transport card or whatever, and connect that to the data that my preferred e-commerce sites are collecting, then maybe the e-commerce sites actually understand when they should interact with me. Because if I'm driving, I for sure don't want to have an SMS saying, you really need to buy this thing now and I'll give you a hundred bucks off. And that's what I see for the future, that with the use of the data that we collect, we can actually help the consumers to make the decisions that they want to make in the right situation and based on insight rather than a pushy salesperson. I feel you talking about a lot of uh, collecting big data and analyzing it. And I understand that the big companies like Amazon, they can definitely do that super well. But for small e-commerces, it's harder to collect data. What should they do to compete with the big ones? I would say for the smaller companies, it's important to understand your visitors. So if you run, let's keep to the subject and and say that it's an e-commerce site and you have 100 visitors per day then it's super important for you to understand who those visitors are, where they came from, where they left the store, why they left, and all that. And all of a sudden, 
the big data chunk is, is not of importance at all because you have such a small amount of traffic. So you need to understand that traffic because if you can understand your traffic and your data set, then you will be able to outsmart your competitors that have a hundred times the same traffic because you can actually narrow down and look into how did these people find my store and see a pattern easily and say, okay, so everybody that come to my store that sells diapers come from a forum online about cars. Is that relevant to my business? No. Do I want <laughs> to pursue this focus group that are coming to my store? Okay, then I probably need to add something that are relevant to, to that traffic or actually see if I can potentially block that traffic so okay. I don't get distracted and that my data is not distracted. Because if I keep on getting traffic that are not relevant to my goals, then my assumption based on the data could be misguided. Mm-hmm. So Carl, just changing gears again, in our most recent module, we were supposed to create a business within three weeks. And by the third presentation, which was today, we should have a minimal viable product or MVP. And I was wondering if you could just give us some insights about your experience with new entrepreneurs developing the MVP, some problems that you foresee people can have quite frequently. Yeah. So the concept of MVP or minimum viable product is really interesting. And it's something that we in Sweden sort of totally failed at. It's not how we are taught in school to do things. And to be able to launch something, you need to be prepared to not do it perfectly. And that's what MVP is all about. To do the bare minimum of what's required. And uh, to make that happen, you need to have a limited time frame. So whatever you do, try to time box it and say, I only have this amount of time to do the product that you're about to launch. To force yourself into a state where you are focusing on delivery rather than doing it perfectly, try to to cut some corners and actually limit that time even more. So what I was doing a couple of years ago was to trying to find my inner inspiration, as I call it. And um, I've been working quite a lot with mind mapping over the years. And I started to collect all these business ideas that I had in a huge mind map. So what I did was to go into that mind map and try to structure the different ideas into segments. And by doing so, I realized where I had the most natural inspiration. And that's what I decided to focus on. So I decided to do 12 MVP launches or launches of a concept or a product over a year. So I timeboxed it to just one month for each startup. And I launched one startup every month. And then I analyzed the impact that I had for each of these ideas to see which concept or angle I should go for. And after doing this, I realized that the most interesting thing, both for me personally, and for the audience that I was attracting, was actually connected to analyzing consumer behaviors online and understanding how e-commerce can convert more. So that's what led me to focus on the, on this area. Okay, so we're going to move in to get a bit more of your advice. Regardless of skill set or you know personal ambition, what do you think is the most important quality for an individual to have to flourish in this digital marketing uh, industry? most important quality I would say is to dare to to fail. Mm -hmm. If you're not prepared to fail, you will not succeed. And to dare to fail enables you to take bolder decisions. And those decisions will be the make it or break it 
if you take bold decisions, you will also be able to outsmart competition. But by just following what others do, you will just get half of what they succeed. And also, you really need to believe in what you do. If you don't believe in what you do and if you don't love what you do, you will never reach the top. Do you have any example of a bold decision that you would like to share with us? So one example that I personally love, because everybody in Sweden can uh, definitely understand it, is that I decided to do exercise during my lunch breaks. And uh, I decided that I wanted to swim as an exercise. Mm -hmm. And it was something that I started doing a couple of years ago, outdoor. And uh, that works for a couple of weeks in the summer. And then it becomes cold. And then it's autumn and it's colder in the water. I kept on swimming. And then it became winter and the water freeze to ice. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it's a situation that most people would say it's impossible because there are no water there. Yeah. But um, with my mindset and the method that I live my life by, I made it possible. Did you break the ice or how did you swim? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So every day <laughs> oh uh, I went down and opened up a large area so that I could actually swim and not just jump in the water, mm -hmm. but actually go back do, and forth. Yeah, back and forth the swimming exercise. That worked for some time. And then when it's been winter for a while, we came back to the area where we were swimming. And the ice is 15 centimeters thick. Exactly. <laughs> then there was a new challenge. <laughs> and we started to look into this new blockage or whatever we like to call it. And uh, saw that, okay, so we can't break the ice any longer. And mm. we started to look into, okay, so can we buy a saw that you can use in the water or whatever? <laughs> and we realized that the ice blocks will actually be too heavy to carry and so on. So we decided to instead run on the ice out to where the big boats were going and there the second problem was presented to us which was okay it's open but it's full with ice so we were actually struggling to get into the water but we managed to do that and had an interesting experience and we learned a lot every day about how our body can be taught to do the impossible Mm -hmm. And again, be open for failure. It's not good to fail when you're in. I was going to say, what does failing look like yeah. in that scenario? <laughs> not being able to go back. To death. Yeah. 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 So in that situation, uh, it could be that like the shoulder gets stuck because it's too cold. And then we need to look into that. Okay, so uh, my movements are limited because of my joints become frozen, basically. So what can I do to stimulate my joints and so on? I don't know if that was the craziest or most motivational story I've heard in a long time. Yeah, but it all goes down to not focus on the impossible part, but actually focus on the possible parts. Yeah. So what can I do? And not listening that much to what other people say is possible or not. I'm not interested in, in doing what everybody else do. I'm interested in doing what I believe in and what I know I can do. There's no substitute for hard work. Yeah. So, building off that, if you could send a message to yourself 10 years ago, what would you say to your younger self? I would try to explain the concept of less is more. Uh, less is more is something that I really believe in and, and that I'm really interested in as well. Because let's say that we have a text that we want to communicate to consumers. If I write a long text, it will most probably not be read by the audience that I want to present it for. But to write a text in fewer words will take longer time than, than writing a text in many words. So I need to really look into what I want to communicate. 
But the concept of less is more is also something that relates to consumer behavior. We don't want all the bells and whistles. We consumers want what we need right there and then. And wherever it is, it's easier to understand something that has less impressions on us. So by focusing on one goal, I will be able to communicate my message in a much more clear way than if I try to communicate five messages at once. So I just wanted to touch upon your work as a facilitator in workshops. I saw on your website you uh, challenged some questions like what's inside the box, what's outside the box, and what is the definition of done? I was wondering if you could explain and explore some of those uh, questions for us. Inside the box is what I would say is how all of us behave based on the set of rules that we have collected over the years and so on. Many of the rules we learn as a child, and then we add rules on rules on rules limiting our creativity and uh, the belief in what's actually possible. So that's what's in the box. The things that people think is a limitation, basically. And outside the box, I would say, are all these things that you can do if you either rewrite the rules or create new rules that opens up new possibilities. And the definition of done is whatever your target audience need to convert. It's not what you think is needed, it's what is needed to do the conversion. And conversion can be seen as so many different things, but it's basically the goal of making a decision. Mm-hmm. What was your like life achievement, what you're super proud of? Something that I learned a couple of years ago is that I believe that I'm set on this earth to make us take one step further down the road, basically. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the goal for all of us. And when our daughter was born, I realized that my life is all about collecting experiences and sharing how I made things possible with my daughter. It's not so much about me. It's more about how I can make sure that people believe in themselves and that they believe in doing what makes them happy, not only what makes them earn the money that they need to actually survive. So the most important thing in my life is to share with others. Nice. nice. For the wrap-up, uh, the same way we do a check-in, we do a check-out just to close up the session. And today's check-out will be, what will you take from this episode? I will definitely take some of your advice with a minimal viable product. I know uh, working on our last project, we were working with an apparel brand and we didn't have the exact look we were going for. And I'll remember next time going forward just to not be so obsessed with the perfection and just try and get it out there so I can potentially fail, potentially succeed, but nevertheless learn from it. Nice. I'll take the advice on fail fast and learn lots. I think that's very valuable. I'll definitely take that with me. I'll take with me that keep on being inspired by people I meet and uh, learning by their questions. Thank you again, Carl, for being here with us today. It was a great session. Some really good insights and advice. And of course, thank you, Beppo Studios, as always. Amazing setting to record Hypertoxin. Check us out on our social medias. Make sure to follow us on Instagram. And as always, you can find us on Apple Podcasts or Acasts or wherever else you find your podcasts. Make sure to check out previous episodes just in case you missed any hidden gems. And as always, thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.